What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Levers Podcast. Um, Shake here, one of the Levered Lads. I'm joined by Tej and Lil Hack, aka Crisp. Um, and today we're going to be de- today we're going to be discussing the psychology of money. Um, we read uh, we all read a book by Morgan Housel, and uh, it brings up some really interesting topics uh, regarding kind of what what's the human side of um, the financial system. And, um, yeah, we're going to just kind of riff on some of those topics there. So kind of to give a very broad overview of the book, um, Morgan kind of explains or attempts to explain some of the irrationality that we see in markets, um, and tie it back into psychology and kind of also gives his version of a very simple way to build wealth. Um, through like dollar cost averaging and index funds. Um, And he explains, you know, using a lot of financial history as well as again, psychological concepts, um, different eras of the U different financial eras in the U S and kind of some misconceptions um, really covers a lot of cool topics, but that's kind of the, the broad overview of it. Um, So, yeah, we can jump into any of this, the things right off the bat, but um, anything you guys thought was were partic- was particularly interesting in the book? Chris? I think the, yeah, the main call out of the book is that um, it's common to think of finance and investing as a quantitative science, but he basically argues that, you know, is more driven by human psychology, which is non-deterministic um, and obviously uh, not predictable. And so understanding that it's not a quantitative science leads you to kind of realize that you need to understand the psychology of money, which is more personal and kind of psychological. And I think that is a good lens to view investing and finance through. Yeah, to, to add to that, um... I think um, what a lot of people um, try to do is to generate these rules for how you should most optimally invest and save, manage your finances. Um, but you realize that everyone approaches every issue, including money and finance, from the personal lens and, and the narrative that they've lived. So like a super simple example would be um, we all probably have in our minds right now, like what equities would mean to us and what bonds would mean to us. But if you're someone who was, you know, born in the 60s and lived through the 70s and hyperinflation, you would view those things totally different. So to instruct someone what to do with their money um, is to forget that they had an experience that was different than yours. Yeah, and that's kind of what kicks off the book is talking about how every investor grows up in a different environment. Um, with a different background. And so their perspective on investing is going to be different and bringing that kind of uh, lens to the problem of investing is super useful. So if you grew up in a time where there's a lot of unemployment and a lot of uncertainty, um, say you graduated when, you know, the financial crisis hit, you're going to act a lot different than if you graduated college in 2015 when everything's going super well. Um, and understanding that we, yeah, we bring these different um, psychologies to investing uh, is, 
I think really useful. Um, yeah. Something for me is like I talk to my dad about investing all the time, and we just obviously grew up in way different times and have way different perspectives. And understanding that we're going to come from a different place, at least then, you know, we can try to communicate. If we act like there's just some golden formula that tells us how everyone should invest, we're just being, um, we're being naive, naively rationalistic. Yeah. And so the, the story that he starts off the book with, I liked where it's basically, he compared, he tells a story of this one janitor versus, I think it was a hedge fund manager or, you know, a guy in finance. And the janitor, when he died, he had like $3 million and he donated $2 million to a local hospital and it like made national news and everybody's like, how the, how the fuck did this guy have three mil? You know, he's literally a janitor his whole life and then <clears throat> compared it to this um, really rich guy who made, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, I forget, but um, that he basically like went broke and had to you know, auction off his house, um, default on all his payments and stuff like that. And um, basically the janitor just was a, was good, was pretty thrifty and he just kept investing in, I think it was index funds or just the market. No, it was blue chip stocks. Um, and um, I like that because I think like in, in our society, right, in our world, there's a lot of like this this idea that you have to like figure something out to build wealth. Like there's like some secret that people aren't telling you, you know, um, it's kind of like, I think about like rich dad, poor dad. I mean, I love that book, but that's kind of Robert Kiyosaki's way. It's like, Oh, the rich don't tell you like how to, you know, how to get rich. They don't want you to be rich. Um, but starting off with that story, it just is like, it doesn't have to be that complicated, you know? And he also has a chapter kind of about, instead of focusing on like how like what's the best way to like beat the market or make the best return focus on kind of like your lifestyle day to day and where are places where you can spend less and save more um so yeah, i like cool. i like the uh quote from the book that he says wealth is the gap between your ego and your income and so yeah. um ronald reed is the janitor that he's talking about he might have had a small income, but he was obviously very humble and saved a lot of his money. And that's why he ended up being wealthy versus someone can have a huge income and be being productive and, you know, generating money. But if you have an even bigger ego, you end up saving nothing and end up not being wealthy. And I think, yeah, the difference between being rich and wealthy is also a very um, valuable mentality. Rich just being you have, you're like generating a lot or you're spending a lot versus wealth is like almost this, um, this accumulated store of value that allows for you to be independent and spend money at any time. Yeah, there, there's no quicker way to go from wealthy to not having wealth than to buy riches, to buy consumables that don't generate anything that aren't, that aren't productive. I think like a, a, that, that, uh, vignette from the beginning with the janitor um you know being frugal and compounding over time is, is also interesting because it gets at a, another of the um the core philosophies of the book which is um people aren't really happier when they're uh, richer um, they're happier when their wealth enables freedom uh, it's when their wealth enables them to control their time spend it with who they like when they want 
um, not be beholden to anyone. And so if you wind it back to the janitor, um, you know, the, the returns of the market largely are not within your control. So to the best of your ability, you should put some amount of your money into wealth generating assets. But what is in your control is like the expense line of your wealth, right? If you're frugal over time, that's something you can control. You have a sort of a margin of safety, this, um, this haven of cash that you can put to work. As that cash compounds, you earn yourself the freedoms that drive actual happiness. Uh, something I like to think about is um, right now, I think there's a sort of, uh, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a communal pressure for young people to go out and spend and live a good life in the city. Um, but I think it's important to realize that and if you put off sort of luxurious spending today and um, the maintenance of a of sort of a high class and um, social lifestyle, um, what you're sort of enabling is for you to save more money today to put into productive assets so that you can have freedom um, in the future. So to think about um, a high standard of life today as sort of this debt that you're accumulating. On the other side of the coin, it could be cash you're accumulating, putting into generating wealth as opposed to appearing wealthy today. Yeah, if we go back to um, the conversation last week as money as power, um, you can kind of think of wealth as like a battery. Um, and basically, the more you can store up money, uh, you're storing up this power in a battery. And obviously, the bigger your battery, you can then go and exert energy um, when you need it. But if your battery is all the way on low, then you constantly need to be stopping to charge it up. Um, because you like you don't have freedom if you're running low on energy, right? You need to go find the outlet, which I guess is like uh, your your employer. You need you to like stay crank in. and charge it back up, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So every time you forego consumption, which is like an expenditure of your battery, your battery charges charges them more, which in the long run gives you more um, just more power and more independence. Yeah. Yeah. One of the quotes uh, that I loved was when most people say they want to be a millionaire, what they might actually mean is I'd like to spend a million dollars. That is literally the opposite of being a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Right. Yeah. The like the desire to spend a million dollars is what will keep you from ever having a million dollars. Yeah. I think the trap is um, it's like the hedon hedonistic treadmill where you know, like you can, you, there's like an illusion, a psych psychological illusion that like once you start, um, like once you have more things, you'll be happy. But in reality, like psychology, psychological studies find that once you get that new car, your happiness level goes back to uh, like almost like the steady state pretty quickly. So it's like you think this purchase is going to like lead to a fundamental shift in your happiness. But once you buy it, you just go back to the same place. And so we constantly are trying to like buy things to just like uh, juice our happiness. But in reality, um, it doesn't even make us so much happier in the long run. And so figuring out a way to stay off the psychological treadmill or uh, not psychological treadmill, the uh, hedonistic treadmill kind of comes back to, you know, how you can figure out ways to save up more money. Yeah, I mean, winding it back to the to the gap between um, where you are and where your ego wants you to be. Like, if you keep, if your idea is that amassing riches is going to make you happier, and once I amass this rich, 
ness, I'm going to be happy. The problem is, as as you run in the treadmill, your actual riches and your goalposts for happiness they move together, and so ultimately you can never win that game. And it's like it's natural. We're social, mimetic creatures. So when we see other people, when we see the Joneses having nice things, we feel like we're entitled to having those nice things. And I think that psychological mindset comes from like a. I mean, he talked about it in the book, like a post-World War II um, sort of like a quality of access. I mean, the, the middle class and the lower classes gained immense purchasing power against the wealthy there. Credit was cheap. Um, jobs were plentiful. People had money to spend. So normal people were buying nice things and they were closing that wealth gap. And now I think what we see now is that wealth gap is not closing. Um, normal people are losing purchasing power, but... We still have that same mindset, which is uh, I want to keep up with the material possessions of others. And so you keep chasing that, and then the goalposts get further and further away. So it's sort of an unwinnable game. Like the status game is sort of inherently an unwinnable game, but we're humans and we want that status. So ultimately, if you break it all down, it's not the wealth, it's not the riches that are going to give you happiness, but the wealth. And the wealth enables freedom so that you can do what you want to do at any given time. Do you, do you guys think that 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 freedom, like maybe this is just my own bias, but it, I think if everybody looked within themselves, that everybody wants that freedom like more than they want an individual purchase, right? Or is, am I just being kind of like narrow sighted in that? I, I think that's I think that's right, but the it, it it takes a super long term and patient mindset to realize that over the long term, what's going to give you happiness is that freedom where like right now, like I'm thinking about like all of the people whom I want to mimic and what they're doing. So all my friends right there, you know, in the city, they're eating nicely. They have good apartments. I see my parents, they have their riches built up, some cars, a house. Um, and those are things that like tomorrow, if I took out a loan or worked a little bit harder this year, I could achieve. And that's going to give me immediate happiness over the short term. Whereas I think it's a lot more, it, it demands a lot more cognitively. It demands a lot more maturity to realize that those things are going to be fleeting and keeping up with the Joneses, even if you could, is going to do far less for your sense of self-worth and, um, and being than generating somehow, putting in the time and patience to generate that genuine freedom for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it also depends on, you know, your personality, like people that are more independent and are going to want financial independence more. And if you really just want to fit in or you're just more like agreeable socially, then, you know, maybe having fitting in more with like purchasing what everyone else is purchasing will be more important than being financially independent. Um, yeah, and I, I I think probably the reason society works the way it does is because most people are more agreeable and want to fit in more. Yeah, so they're willing true. to trade independence for um kind of purchasing what what everyone else has. Like social, it's like it's like Naval talks about. It's like a social game. Yeah. Because if, if everybody just, you know, stopped buying random shit and bought, you know, bought index funds or bought whatever, bought assets, the economy would crash. 
Well, right? interesting. Yeah, I mean, as the economic infrastructure and in, uh, exists today, yes, because it kind of gets into this at the end of the book. But post World War II, basically, the government artificially pushed down interest rates so that people could take out more debt so they can buy more now. Um, and the whole kind of like Federal Reserve is set up to be a lender of last resort so that we can keep taking on more debt so we can keep buying more now for eventually having to pay off the debt later. But what happens is the Fed keeps lowering interest rates so we can keep buying more now and consuming more now. And so the whole financial and economic system is built around consuming more immediately and foregoing future future gains, which is kind of crazy, but like that's why consumerism is so built into our culture is because from a top-down perspective, like they're encouraging us to basically consume and to borrow. Like that's the whole bedrock of uh, Keynesian economics where if we got rid of this unnatural interest rate, if it was more expensive to borrow, people would borrow less and they would save more. People's time preference would be lower, um, which is like Austrian economics thing. So it's almost like we could rethink society and move away from consumerism if we didn't make borrowing debt so artificially cheap, right? Like um, that's part of the reason why Americans are so obsessed with consuming things. Cause it's like, that's what the whole architecture is built around, you know? And it does not even me just being into conspiracy theories like that. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, no, it's not a conspiracy. What's that's Keynesian? what academics said, literally believe in. Um, <laughs> What's Keynesian economics? What does that mean? Uh, Keynesian economics is Keynes was this guy who was an economist in the early 20th century um, and kind of built up this idea that the economy, you can, the economy is driven by spending. And so it's up to the government to avoid recessions by basically encouraging um, spending so that the economy keeps moving. Um, and kind of how, and maybe he didn't think this explicitly but how this kind of manifests itself is the government keeps taking on debt to try to stimulate the economy and basically the federal reserve keeps lowering interest rates so that people can borrow and keep spending more and so we just like keep levering up the system with more debt so that it like there's more activity um but that means like it, it leads to unnatural levels of debt and spending in my opinion um so if all these like some of these cultural critiques of American consumerism can be tied back to like this almost like uh, design of the underlying mechanics of money, um, which is kind of crazy. Another continuation from last week is like that post World War Two expansion of credit. Um, it changed the narrative that people tell themselves about what they're entitled to buy. Right. So people had jobs and people were spending on things like cars and houses. And I sort of talked about this before, like things genuinely got better over that period. Right. And so people, especially now who are of retirement age, had that idea that they're entitled to consume and they should do so because it's being supportive. Right. The Fed expanded their credit. And once the Fed started to do that, you still have that today, which is sort of like this drunkenness on credit. But what's happened today is the purchasing power for those people who initially had a surge in purchasing power in the 50s, that purchasing power has disappeared. But the credit is still entering the system. 
right? There's this drunkenness on that credit. And where that shows up is by this thing called, I think it's the Cantillon effect, which basically says when you infuse money into a system, those parties that are um, closest to that money are the ones that benefit. And where that shows up is when the Federal Reserve starts buying bonds and starts infusing the system with cheap credit, that money typically goes to productive capital assets. It goes to wealth assets. And so regular people feel that they're entitled to this regular consumption that they were used to, but the wealth of the wealthiest, it, it takes off because the money goes directly to those wealth assets. So you have a situation which is a disconnect between what the average person thinks they're entitled to and the wealth gap that they're now comparing themselves to. And it sort of just continues to expand in a, in a tricky kind of way. It's a cantillion effect. Not to, Mind blown. Not to dunk on you, but... Cantillion. It's, it's, not, it's not the cantillon effect? Cantillon. I think cantillion, yeah, it's a cantillion. It's um, the cantaloupe effect. The we'll cantaloupe link it below. effect is where the Fed just nails everyone uh, cantaloupe no so that they can continue <laughs> to eat. <laughs> It's, it's, the cantaloupe effect is when the Fed mails the wealthy melons and then the poor starve. The cantaloupe effect is when the Fed releases lions and they eat all the uh, the poor antelopes that are running around. <laughs> um, I think, uh, interestingly, so yeah, if we come back to like, why is consumerism so big in America? Uh, you know, starts with this cheap cheap debt basically our our grandparents are able to buy cars and houses because they're getting cheap debt and they're like okay eventually i'll pay this off and we look around us and you know apparently credit it drops in the book credit cards like using credit cards used to be tax deductible so the whole economic infrastructure is set up for us to spend more than we have and so that's why it, it seems so weird when people try to go the opposite way but i mean I think this kind of comes back to, you know, why there's this appeal towards minimalism and, and fasting, you know, backlinking to episodes one and two. Uh, minimalism and fasting require, you know, abstaining from consumption. And so the value in abstaining consumption, there's obviously health benefits, but there's also this sense of like you're opting out of um, the culture of consumption and you're learning to be happy without needing to constantly buying things. And the reason that's hard is it goes against literally the general like thrust of the underlying infrastructure of the society we live in. But I mean, the more you get into fasting and minimalism and those type of uh, via ne- negative activities, like you realize that, you know, you can be happy without always spending things. So um, I think that's why we're attracted to those habits, right? Um, they're, they're, they're a way to break out of the hedonistic treadmill and just go on a nice walk in nature and on a right. hike. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. All the episodes we've done so far are, are very linked. Like there's this common thread of minimalism. So it's, it's only right that we started with that. <clears throat> yeah. Levers, I, baby. I, I think of fasting as you're forgoing food. And so your body is using is using your stored chemical energy. It's burning that. And as you burn that chemical energy that's stored in fat, it's charging up your financial battery. So it's converting stored oh. chemical energy into stored uh, financial energy. 
which then you can use on a hundred X leverage uh, BTC call option. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Don't do that. Maybe. <laughs> nah, nah. Buy, buy, buy government bonds, please. <laughs> yeah. I wish this guy talked about Bitcoin, man. I was a little disappointed. You know. I think is uh, it's a little too early. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would hype it up now. The psychology of Bitcoin. Maybe we'll maybe we'll all co-author a book, The Psychology of Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, um do the psychology of Dogecoin. <laughs> psychology, yeah, that would probably be more interesting. Um <laughs> <laughs> there was something that I wanted to bring up, but I totally forget it now. So I, I, I've, I, I've got I've got I've got an idea for a direction. Let's let's maybe return to um the points in the book. Uh, in regard to, to wealth generation over time. So we've talked about kind of like the the psychological disconnect between how to generate wealth and what people envision as wealth. If you're consuming, you're not building wealth usually. Um, if you're amassing assets that depreciate, that signal status, that aren't hidden and productive, yada, yada, yada. I think one of the good points in the book, which is, um, you know, maybe, you know, beating a horse that's already been beaten too many times, but this idea of, compounding being so important. So you want to be playing a long-term game. You want to be adding to your wealth over time so it can build on itself. Um, it's difficult to think um, exponentially, but you know, ultimately, you give the example of, um, of Warren Buffett and how when he was 30, he had a million dollars, which is a lot of money. He did well for himself early, but the vast majority of his wealth came at the very end of his career. He was playing a very, very long game. And so small amounts of money he added to productive assets over time ultimately made him one of the wealthiest men in the world. And what was critical to that is if you're playing a long-term game, if you're building long-term wealth, you need to afford yourself the ability to continue playing that game. You need to afford yourself the ability to survive. And you can't survive if you're overly exposed to these tail risks, these few events that happen over the course of history that define that history, either the downside or the upside. So for example, if you were writing really well throughout the early 2000s on the back of dot-com bubble, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself, feeling pretty good about your investments. And then in 2008, you may have felt entitled to you know, lever up, take additional risk because times were so good. But if you went ahead and did that and exposed yourself to the risk of 2009, that could have blown you out of the water, right? If you survived those downturns, it allows you to compound over the long term. So the idea being that if a few events define effectively your ability to generate wealth, you need to ensure you have some margin of safety, some reservoir, such that you can play long-term games with long-term people, which I think is pretty important. Yeah, that comes back to the whole um, NNT anti-fragile is there's going to be these huge uncertain events. Um, and ideally, uh, you benefit from these uncertain events that, that, may, that are disproportionately um, impactful and you don't get crushed by them. So step one is make sure you don't get wiped out. And then step two is as long as you don't get wiped out, try to have exposure on the upside to positive big events. So, you know, right. one example would be don't get wiped out by uh, over levering on your house. Um, and so don't get wiped out in 2007 to 09. And then somehow, you know, have upward ex exposure to investing in things like Apple and Amazon, which, you know, of the fat tails and returns for equities. Um, and kind of what this book gets into is like, you know, in retrospect, we know those are, 
the big impactful events. Um, but before those happened, you wouldn't be able to know that, you know, you're going to get your house, house is going to get wiped out and Apple's going to go on this huge run. So you just want to have uh, a margin of safety so that you don't get wiped out by your house. And you want to make a lot of bets so that, you know, you kind of hedge your ignorance by making a lot of bets on, um, um, on a lot of different investments in case the one that pops out like Apple that you have exposure to it. But he doesn't do that, right? No, which is, which is, which it's is interesting, what, which is, which is what's super interesting. Sorry, go ahead. No. Yeah. I was just, I was just saying, cause I, I do remember that part. Um, but then he at the end says, you know, just he's an index guy. Well, I think well, you could argue that an index captures is like an averaging function that'll capture the overall upside of the U.S. economy. So he doesn't know what comp like what companies in the U.S. economy are going to win, but that'll that'll express itself in the index fund. And and I think a, a an interesting thing about like Housel's like personal story within this book is like there's this idea quantitatively that. You want to be playing the game for a long time because a few events to the downside to the upside are going to define your returns. And so he buys the index fund so that regardless of which names within that fund like define the returns of the index, he's exposed to them. But even then, he talks about how relative to you know, his more like, optimizing financial friends, he takes a safer approach. And that's what gets outside of this sort of rational financial mindset to one that's reasonable. The reason he's so safe with his money and not realistically entitling himself to the returns that most other investors would is because he's optimizing for like a sense of um, healthy well-being. And so if he's exposed to risk assets and um, you know, he has a bad year, he has to come home to his family and explain to his wife you know, what's happening with their finances and they have kids to put through college. Realistically, he's optimizing for sleeping well at night, which I think is hugely, hugely important. Like ultimately, if you're invested in super risky assets and, um, you know, their downturn affects your your day to day life, that's what's affecting that like true freedom and happiness on a day to day. So it's not just purely quantitative, like you, you got to ensure you're looking after, you know, the psychological space between your ears as well. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I like that. And he also talked about how he paid off his house in cash, even though Right, right. Would, yeah, just right. Which, um, yeah, there's something to be said for that too. You know, like if you just if you have it set up where you're just auto investing in, you know, whatever assets you like, and you, let's say, an index fund, right? Like him, there's there's a lot of uh, your your mental space is freed up, which which honestly you could argue like, you know, has its own return. Um, I mean, he doesn't really say that, but. Yeah, he talks more about the peace of mind, which I which I think is a is a really good point. Yeah, I mean, like if, if, if go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was just gonna bring up the the Markowitz anecdote um, about how uh, Markowitz was this guy who came up with like the efficient frontier trade off between uh, return and risk in modern portfolio theory uh, branch of finance. And that was a very mathematical construct that uh, dictates your al like optimal allocation um, in your portfolio. Um, and then in practice though, Markowitz just 
did 50% bonds and 50% stocks because that he said that's what let him sleep at night. So it's kind of right. like there's all this like charlatan math going on about optimal covariance that gives you the best risk return. But in reality, it's like we're humans and we like simple rules, simple heuristics that um, let us sleep at night. And right. that's the psychology of money. You know, it's like what investments do you think will lead to growth, but also leave you confident. It's not about some stupid, you know, billion, billion parameter uh, transformer neural net that's that's telling you what to invest in. That stuff's like, that stuff's honestly nonsense. Um, so, like, I mean, even if even if you had like, if you were, you know, a, a Bill Ackman who's an activist hedge fund manager, or like a Michael Burry who bet against the U.S. economy in 2007. Like, even if you had such high conviction that over the long term, like a really really concentrated trade would turn out. Like it's very likely that in the short term, you're, you know, you're forcing yourself into like psychological warfare while things move against you. And is that just horrible mental state in the short term or over medium term worth the financial output on the back end? Like if you had a trade that took five years to actualize and the first three years it went completely against you and you saw your net worth cut in half. I mean, those three years, like, you know, we're, we all have 85 years to live. Do you really want to give three of them up? Like, it's, it's just. Yeah. Top trade off. Gotta be careful. I liked how he um, quoted Nassim Taleb a couple times, too. I mean, this one, this one quote um, I liked was, well, to sum it up, basically it's, that not all success is due to hard work and not all poverty is due to laziness. Um, he says, keep this in mind when judging people, including yourself. So, and he also has a, he also has a chapter about luck as well, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's because good. I, yeah, I find that so interesting, right? Where it's, we overestimate kind of certain characteristics and successful people. Um, Honestly, reading the Seam to Love is like forever kind of tainted the way I look at things. But people love to go, oh, if you look at all these successful people, here's the things they have in common, right? And so just do those and you'll be successful. But it's not deterministic because, I mean, we, we all know people who are hardworking, um, you know, ambitious, tough, smart, and they're not successful, right? Right. Um, there's no like, there's no secret formula, really. Yeah, I, uh, you, you kind of got it. I was gonna say, um, I think that's a good point. That's that's so tough to really internalize because, like, getting back to um, the control aspect, we as humans need to feel like we have some level of control over our fate. Uh, if it was purely deterministic, then you know, life sort of loses meaningless or loses meaning. Um, and so luck is a, is a critical part. I mean, there was even the, I'm pretty sure it was in this book, um, the little vignette about Bill Gates and how he was in a high school when he was 13 that had one of the most powerful computers in the world that allowed him to tinker and learn. And ultimately, it was access to that high school and that computer at that time that enabled him to build the skill necessary to you know, build the empire he did. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of almost Malcolm Gladwell outliers type argument where it's like you can't control so many factors of what leads to success. So success is largely determined by luck, which I, I, I think is interesting. You know, it, it's kind of natural to try to view the world deterministically. Like if I do X, Y will happen. Um, and the, the outlier like model that, you know, a lot of success is driven by luck. I think is useful. Alternatively, I do think um, there is still skill involved and um, you can kind of think about it like as if, if we were to run the tape of life over a thousand times, a thousand simulations, um, of course probability is gonna play into how things go. But if you average across those thousand runs, uh, acting one way versus another way probably boosts your chance of success, right? So if you always save more money, um, you don't gamble ridiculously, uh, you know, you invest in the index one, you're probably more likely to be successful than if, you, if you're just like an alcoholic or a degen and you live certain other ways. So if you look at all these different trials and if you act way X versus way Y, if X on average has a better outcome, isn't that something, I, I think that kind of suggests a level of skill or um, a better way of doing things. And I think that's, uh, Mark Andreessen has a blog post about like four kinds of luck um, or, or how luck attributes to success. Maybe it's not four kinds of luck, it's four types of success. Like one type of success is like, you're just in the right place at the right time um, and that's what we think of as like blind luck. But then there's this like deeper type of success where it's like, you know, if we, if we run the a thousand simulations, like you end up being successful in 900 of them. Right. And it's because you did think like your behavior means that like most of the time, good things happen. And I think, you know, part of the whole levers ethos is like finding the levers that you know, if we have to do the Monte, Monte Carlo simulation over and over again, more times than not, like things are going to end up okay. And I think that's why we've gone into, you know, fasting and minimalism. Because if you adopt those, um, if you adopt those personally, we think that more often than not, that's going to benefit you, right? So I don't, yeah. I guess I don't want to completely give up on the idea of skill. No, no, skill, skill is definitely there. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a game of odds where if you do the right things over the long term, you should, should come out ahead. It's not a game of, of certainty. Like the, you know, ch chance does favor the prepared mind to some extent. We're not just like, you know, fully at the, the winds of luck. Um, but I think the idea is that you got to allow yourself to a put your in a position to take advantage of those odds and B play the game long enough such that your expected value over those thousand simulations is positive. It's like, it's like the, they give a blackjack example in the book. Like if you're someone who's pretty good at calculating probabilities in your mind, um, you can start counting cards and in any one given game, you're subject to the chance um, the dealer deals a, a card that doesn't go your way. But if you're really good at it and you calculate those probabilities correctly, playing in Vegas over 30 years, counting cards effectively, you should come out ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And plus it's, you know, outliers is literally about the outliers, right? I mean, there's plenty of, um, 
like it's, I think it's like a sliding scale, you know, there's like, if you, if you do all the kind of skill and, and choice, you, you know, you make the, you make the best choices that you can. The pro, like you said, the probability of you at least doing well for yourself is pretty high. The probability of you like being the next Jeff Bezos, even if you do everything right is, is almost zero, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's like a balance because, you know, like after I read, um, what's Nassim Taleb's book called that you recommended me, Heaney? I'm just blanking on it. Fooled by, random. no, fooled by randomness. Fooled by randomness, right. After I read that book, I, I felt kind of pessimistic, like, oh, like all these charlatans, they don't, you know, they don't know why they're successful and nobody knows how to be successful. You know, I got very like cynical <laughs> of the world, um, which kind of as we were referring to with the, I think it was the Markowitz thing you talked about. It's like, that's not a good, that's not a practical way to live life. No. If you go around thinking it's all about luck and, oh, I have no chance. I just, if, you know, unless I get lucky, um, then you're, I mean, you're not going to, then you're kind of ensuring that you're not going to have any kind of success. Yeah. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't, you can't even, I mean, at least for me, like I refuse to admit maybe unreasonably that, um, that we don't have free will because when you admit to that, like my operation is meaningless. So I'm going to refuse to do that, even if that's the scientific truth. But lads, I have, I have a question for you. I want to hear from you guys. So one of the parts in the book, which I found super compelling, um, is that we have like a very difficult time anticipating what our future selves will find important or what we'll want in the future. Like, what have you guys seen? Like, let's say post wash you, like, you're in your 18 year old bodies, you have an idea of what you think you want, like how quickly have those things changed for you guys? And what do you do kind of in your day to day when you structure your lives to, um, to respect the fact that your current self and his goals may be different from your five years or 10 years out self? It's a really good question. Um, you know, for me, I mean, for me, what I immediately think of is what you know at different parts between 18 and you know 24 the different things i thought i wanted to do with my career um and i also overestimated how much like what my what industry i worked in would matter to me mm. um and i think i underestimated my own ability to to find things interesting you know right. um but in terms of like what i do today i mean the the only thing I could think of is save. And that's been something for me just yeah. over the past year or two that I've, that I've really been trying to do. Um, because it, if you have more money, it's just more options. That's what, that's what my dad always told me. He was like, money doesn't bring you happiness, but money brings you options. And, and yeah. so it's kind of rational knowing that we can't predict our future preferences. If we have more options, it's, it's a better thing, most likely. Yeah, I think um, not knowing what I'll want in the future, for sure, um, in like the most fine detail, I think my general philosophy is investing in invariance. I guess when I say investing, I mean in the very loose sense of like how I spend my time. And what I consider invariance are like the things that I'll end up caring about and as many of the 1,000 simulations going forward as possible. Um, and so things that are invariants in my life are like physical health, um, having 
more having money as an invariant because you know no matter what life you're in it's going to give you options um and then kind of in my interest i try to read stuff that like books that i think i'll appreciate no matter what i do in my career um like that's why i think i'm very interested in math is that math is kind of gives you models and ideas that are applicable across a wide swath of um topics so if you're interested so if you're if you have uh a decent bit of skill with math you can kind of hop into different subjects pretty easily and then also just spending time with people that i know i'll care about you know 10 years from now so i think that kind of um, permeates my philosophy towards decision making is thinking about invariance i mean it's, it sounds like both of you guys to harken back you use a sense of minimalism uh to hedge away the uncertainty of not knowing what your future self wants like if i have this time to allocate towards behaviors what behaviors are so ne necessary that regardless of where i go they'll be accretive towards those um i, I think I, I think about it similarly and you can get super mechanical about this but i think it's largely a good exercise so there's this idea of instrumental convergence which when considering sort of like an autonomous ai the hellscape of an autonomous ai and trying to envision what that ai might do you can't you don't know what its goals are what its future goals are what's going to optimize for but you can look deep deep down and see which behaviors it's likely to take regardless of which path it ultimately takes and so um so hey you mentioned saving regardless of where you go having more money in the door today gives you optionality which allows you freedom for you chris reading math i think spending time with your family is important um and i think i sort of use um the same kind of idea i think it would be arrogant to know what i want five years from now i mean it's arrogant to even know what i want two months from now um there's so much room for randomness so what things can you do today um that regardless of what happens gets you ahead tomorrow i think is uh yeah is an important important little model and again you can get you can get super mechanistic about this and a lot of my friends give me shit for always thinking about what the opportunity cost of consumption is today but i mean ultimately i think over the long term it, it generates the most uh sort of sense of self-worth and, and meaning there's also a sense yeah. in which yeah. like the end you are I was just going to say there's a there's a sense of like when you focus on the things that you think you'll want or care about the longest or the most likely across everything it's almost like your true self right if it's like these characteristics that really matter no matter what I think that is ultimately what you care about them it's a kind of a backwards way of getting to like who you are and what you care about you know maybe an overly yeah, mechanistic way of doing it, but there's there's something there. Yeah. Yeah. The essence of self. Yeah. I, I like what Chris said too. I, I was I was thinking like just learning, you know. And it you could try to learn things that that are, you know, um like timeless ideas or broad kind of systems of, of thinking. But I think just learning in general, like it's going to help you you know, regardless of what it is, just knowing, having more knowledge um, is, is a good thing.
And that's kind of like yeah. the approach I took once I got out of college, like, cause I, in college, I tried to work in like the fashion industry and worked at these streetwear companies. Cause I thought that that was like my passion. That's what I need to do. Um, and I realized that it wasn't that great, you know, and I wasn't learning that much. I wasn't working with smart people or successful people. And so then I kind of took the approach of like, let me just get a job where I can learn a lot. Like I can learn skills and, you know, domain knowledge as much as possible. Um, and you know, I, I have no doubt that I'll do something different in the future, but, uh, more knowledge is more power, but ignorance yeah. is bliss. <laughs> I, I, I guess to tie it back to my personal life is when I was thinking about leaving Amazon, I was close, closest to a promotion. Um, and it was like, you know, should I stay longer to get promoted? Um, that's obviously like usually want to get promoted cause it looks good, but I felt like to get promoted, I was starting to like really have to specialize in Amazon culture and, um, kind of becoming optimized to be, a, a engineer in a big company. And just because my general philosophy is like, I should be doing things that are more invariant to my future. I was like, I don't know if that's like actually worth the time um, staying at Amazon. So I ultimately was like, you know, like I, my motives operandi shouldn't be to get promotions and move up corporate ladder should be to, you know, um, do things that I, I really care about. So that kind of motivated me to leave. And I've made decisions like that a couple times, but it's really hard to do it. And, you know, ultimately maybe, maybe I'll regret it. So, <laughs> Teach, what about I you? I might be wrong, you know, but that's what I did. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear about you leaving your your job, Teach. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, similar to Chris, the timing was interesting. Like, you know, I'd been in finance for two years, received two bonuses, and you know, when those bonuses hit, like, the surge of dopamine is absurd. And um, right when I left. You know, I, I I immediately anticipated this future loss aversion, which is if I just stick around for three months playing the part, um, another bonus comes in. Like, wh- how, who, who are you to be so arrogant to not just allow that to happen and instead dive into uncertainty? But ultimately, the way I thought about it is um, this thing is not making me happy. I'm not re- I'm no longer really working on things that I find intellectually riveting um, and it's taking away time I could be putting into like these instrumental things like learning, spending time with my family, like really leaning into developing um, physical health. Um, so maybe consider the fact that you just hop out of um, that path um, and focus on some of the things that you know realistically wherever your life goes um, are going to be instrumental. And as soon as I did that, um, you know, the feeling of losing security, it, 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 it wanes. Initially it's shocking that, you know, you're no longer going to have a paycheck coming in. Um, but I know that, um, my time is spent doing what I want to do. Um, and there's not a higher power telling me what I can do. Um, and ultimately that internal locus of control, um, the, just the sheer power um, that it allows far outweighs whatever check amount that bonus was going to be. 
Um, and now, you know, like um, Crisp is up here uh, in the Hudson Valley and, you know, we're working on some crypto stuff. And so what, what happened is before, you know, professional life was over here and like my true self was over here. And now you have just a collision, right? And when that collision happens, um, to the extent that you can, like everyone has their own limitations, um, but it gives you a new platform um, and a new lens through which to, to look at life, um, which to be honest, I'm not, I'm not sure I could, I could ever give up. Um, and once you're in this lens, you also, you're put into survival mode, right? If you fail, it's on you. Whereas um, at my corporate job, like, sure, it was challenging, but I largely just had to do the right thing, show up for work, work your way up the ladder. 60 years later or 50 years later, you're retired with a white picket fence and a family, right? And people like that. They like that security. Um, but it wasn't for me. I didn't feel in control. Um, and I want to feel in control of my time. I think that's what will generate real happiness. So I'm pretty thrilled to have been on the other side of that and uh, doing things I love with people I love. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, time versus money and kind of, you know, we're all in our 20s. And how do we leverage time? How do we leverage money? Because, um, you know, part of me thinks like, okay, Right now we have time, at least me, I don't have that much money. You know what I mean? Um, but then part of me also thinks like, well, the time that I spend right now is like the most leveraged that it's ever going to be, you know? And the time that I've already spent is like the most leveraged that it ever was it, to a degree, I think. Um, so I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that, like time versus money and, and what, I don't know. Does that make does that make sense? I don't. I, it's kind of an abstract thought, but because um, it seems like from both of what you guys are saying is like your your time, the control over your time, was really important. Like Chris, what kind of both you guys like? Okay, do I want to spend the time and energy to get this promotion, or just spend the time, like TJ said, just showing up and doing my job? Like I, it's it's stable, it's reliable, but that time yeah. spent elsewhere could have outsized returns, right? I mean, time is the ultimate resource, so it's it's more important than than anything because it's that it's ultimately the most fixed resource. Um, I guess the way I thought I think about it, or I kind of talked about this with um, an engineer I worked with when I left Amazon, is there's kind of three forms of capital to think about, like investing in. I mean, this is very again, mechanistic, but who cares? Uh, there's human capital, which is like your social, like your skills, like what, what can you create and do that's unique to you? There's financial capital, which is like obviously money, stonks, real estate, etc. And then there's social capital, which is like the people you know and like the network that you live in. And I think when you're young, you need to be thinking like, you know, what, what type of capital are you investing in? I would say that financial capital is um, there's like a necessary amount you need to be independent because like financial capital is the, is kind of, you know, what the energy we use to pay for everything constantly. So you need some level of it, but past the, you know, an initial amount, I think is way more important to think about human capital and social capital. Like what are you learning that, you like and that makes you like a productive and creative person i mean you want to be building cool things or creating good things so 
you know, I think most important is investing in your in yourself and learning how to create and then forming really, you know, um, uh, trusting and like uh, wholesome relationships with people is then the next important thing, because obviously, like, you can't do anything as, as an individual alone. You need other people. So I think being very conscious of like who you spend your time with and like that you that you connect with good people is important. And then I think as you and you know as your human capital and your social capital grows, the financial capital just kind of works itself out. It's kind of my belief. So I think when you think about early career, you should be investing your time in human and social capital and just kind of trusting that the financial comes later and like that's what happened to warren buffett right he had a million dollars at the age of 30 um and then he had like 90 85 or 95 billion by the time now so it's like all those i I think he probably over indexed for uh human and social capital and then later you know the financial capital just comes because you're able to bring so much productivity to bear on your life so that's my philosophy the Heaney mechanism or the Heaney system. I like. I I really like that. I really like that. And I I would say that I I, I think I agree with with you completely. Teej is only in it for financial capital. He's just currently extracting as much of it from me as possible. <laughs> from you? Oh. Yeah. He's taxing me a thousand dollars a day to be here. <laughs> Yeah, he he rents the uh, the outhouse, and it's uh, two thousand dollar rent per day. <laughs> well, Just it's kidding. it's interesting because, like, you know, in my life, I, I the last job I had, I w- I was learning a good amount, and there was a lot of potential to to make money, you know. Um, but it was I, on the human capital and and social capital the the prospects were pretty low, you know? And I think, I think it's, it seems like a lot of people get kind of stuck in like the momentum of their, their life and don't take the time to think about kind of what you're saying, where it's, am I, am I developing the skills and relationships that are going to um, give me the most probability of like living a fruitful life? Well, I think also there, like, um, uh, like my judgments about what will drive um, meaning for me, um, I think are a lot are too harsh um, for for me to apply to most people. Like I, it, it's it's very reasonable to you know stick in a job that's secure and you you like you enjoy your coworkers to an extent and. Um, you know, you're not thrilled to go to the office, but it's fine and it's good and you build wealth and things are safe um, because ultimately like that job and that routine, um, it gives your narrative structure. And like you were saying, it gives you this momentum and this trajectory that you can follow and know that you're, you're proceeding and you're getting on with it. Whereas if you unplug from that um, and you go into survival mode, which is kind of where I'm at, like doing things I'm passionate about with people I'm passionate about but it's really all on you. Like, you know, who knows, you know, Bitcoin could get um, banned tomorrow and then, you know, a non-trivial amount of my financial capital is wiped out, right? And I got to deal with that on my own. I got to find my own meaning and dig through that. And that survival and that grit that, that fires me up 
but it's perfectly reasonable not to not to want that like you know it, that that's that's hard especially if you have a family if you have that's dependencies if you have kids like it's 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 very reasonable to structure your life in such a way where security is guaranteed um and you're pretty happy and you spend some time with people you love you know it's not to be scoffed at by any means yeah yeah i have and i find myself like projecting my own preferences on other people like oh look at these sheep <laughs> you know but right, it's right. but they're but they're they're not sheep like you said people have different um preferences and priorities and situations in life um, i mean my dad is self-employed has been always self-employed and my mom um is not self-employed and they are both have stresses and they're just different types of stress my mom's stress is more like every day she has to go to the office and deal with people and it, so it's more it's almost like a DC type of stress or it's like every day it's the same level of stress or my, my dad's stress is much more volatile where it's like sometimes, you know, he's stressed, he's going to have no business and it's like way more intense. And then other times like he's just taking a nap at like 1 PM on a Tuesday and there's absolutely no stress. And so it's a lot more volatile. And so it's almost like by being, there's ways that you can like hedge your stress but then it might just mean that you have a more consistent level of stress where is being more independent. Independent means there's moments where you're um, not stressed at all, but then there's other times where it's like your livelihood feels like it's at stake. And so it's just that AC versus DC uh, type of living. And I mean, I think... What's, what do you, what's that mean, AC versus DC? Uh, AC is alternative current. And with like electricity and DC is a direct current and electricity. So it's just like, you know, the volume of throughput over time is constant versus like up and down, um, like, like a sine wave. Um, yeah. and I think, I mean, this is me being kind of spiritual, I guess, but I think the gene pool, like, uh, there's people that want volatility in their stress and there's people that want a constant and, and for some reason, it, it behooves society to have people with uh, like different personality types. With both, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, it, and it's probably really strongly correlated with like your appetite for risk. Um, and you kind of, it's interesting because like you can kind of choose the type of stress you want, and you can, and also the type of happiness. I think because mm -hmm. there is something nice about like. There's, there is some happiness associated with like, hey, I'm going to go to the same job with the same people and we get to, you know, it's just like that stability is, uh, you know, it, it, it's nice to, to some people. And, and I, I myself am more, much more like, oh, I prefer the volatility, but I, I see the side of the, the happiness associated with that too. You know, working somewhere. I know this guy who's worked somewhere for like 40 years and he like his whole life and he's like he's like 60 he's like my dad's age and um and it's just i don't know there is some happiness to that he you know he shoots the shit with the co-workers and they've all been there for decades and it's very reliable um i don't know yeah it's, it's really interesting and some people want different types of different points of their life too and in different areas of their life like you might want constant stream yeah. of one in one area of life and more volatility in another. Yeah. Well, that's to kind of bring in a uh, personal anecdote. Like 
I I quit my job and Shaney quit her job. You know, well, I took a new job and Shaney completely quit her job and we moved to Los Angeles, right? And um, neither of us has much, well, she has a good amount of money in her 401k, but neither of us has much like cash to rely on. And I took a job at like a very early stage startup that could easily go bust in a year or two, you know. But the way that I looked at it is exactly like you're saying. It's, you know, five years from now, we'll probably have children and be married and won't, you know, the, that this type of volatility that we have now, it will be almost out of the question. Um, but now it's, now, I mean, now it's, it's great, right? Um, now it, now it's reasonable for us to do it. Because the returns, you know, the returns of Shaney, like blowing up on TikTok and, you know, being able to make a lot of money from that, it's it's unlikely, right? But it's um, the that would that's far outweighs the returns of her, you know, working for seventy k a year doing marketing. Um, totally. And it's like for you guys too. I mean, you guys both were making really good money, I would assume, you know, and like working in like probably the two most lucrative in- industries or you know areas of our economy um, with the two skills that are like the most well-paid, right? But for you guys, you know, foregoing that and Tej focusing on building like a health practice and then you guys making a crypto fund. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people look at you like, dude, these guys are fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I think also like you, you guys alluded to like biological differences. Like I think that's huge. And, um, at least in the current climate, we, we tend to, um, I think ignore those biological differences to an extent, but like, um, like I, I've known for a long time, at least since college that, um, uh, maintaining freedom and, and, and not being beholden to a higher power is like at the core of my being. Um, like, I think if you rewind to like an evolutionary past, like I, I probably would have been marauding and hunting quite a bit and pushing the envelope and certainly uh, and, see, and seeking risk and seeking risk. I, 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 I hoard risk. Um, so it's something that sometimes needs to be balanced, but like knowing that about yourself, if you know that about yourself, if you are taking the time to know yourself, like all of the money that finance can throw at you in the world is not enough to offset the pain from being told what to do and sort of being in a cage day in and day out. Uh, and when you realize that, that like that's core to your being and you're telling yourself a lie on, on a daily basis, it, it's kind of irreconcilable. So to, to plunge into the abyss is, um, is almost mandatory. At least it was for me. Yeah. I, lo- I love where this conversation has gone. I think uh, to tie it back to psychology and money, I could see like people looking at the titles of our podcast and being like, oh, they're talking about money a lot. They really want to be rich. I think for me, the reason this book is interesting and the reason we go into these things is by thinking about and reflecting on it, it's to try to come up with ways to be less dependent um, on other people so that we can be independent. It's not so that I can just be so rich and... Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, I just want to figure out a scheme to basically be independent. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I, I don't like, 
even though we are talking about, like you said, people might think, oh, these guys want to want to get rich and they're talking about how to get rich. We don't even talk about that. I think it's more like how to be sovereign, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't. Solve. And it's like, how, how can, yeah, yeah. That's what I want. It's just the freedom. That's that's like I value freedom over everything. In 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 that vein too, like the things don't have to run contrary to each other, right? We're we're not necessarily like explicitly optimizing for financial capital and building it, but you know we're putting our time into generating these levers um, that give us meaning, and by pursuing the things that give us meaning, we get better at them. Um, and ultimately, you should be paid for that skill at some point over the long term if you run the Monte Carlo. So it's kind of like by not explicitly optimizing for for financial gain today, the financial gain sort of works itself out. Yeah. And, wow. and, and ultimately, you need to care about money because uh, because there's no such thing as a free lunch, you know, <laughs> like. You can't be you can't be independent without paying the cost to be independent. So somehow you need to figure out how to secure the resources to pay the the independent independence tax, right? Like, yeah. uh, even if that just means enough to eat, you still need to figure out how to eat, right? Like, um, Tom Stoffel. So I I said that to Shaney. We were we were driving down to see my mom. And she, my mom texted us, "Hey, I'll, you know, you guys want to? I'll buy lunch for you guys." And I was like, "Oh, you know, we were in the car. I was like, oh, man, there, you know, there's no such thing as free lunch.'" And Shaney, Shaney had never heard that saying. She's like, "What do you mean? It is literally free. Your mom's paying for it." And I had to explain <laughs> that to her. <laughs> you, you explain to her why your mom's on a free lunch, or <laughs> why the lunch with my mom is wasn't wasn't free. I'm like, look, yeah. we had to pay for gas and drive down there, and then I have to listen to her. And, I mean, I love my yeah. mom. You know, I, I enjoyed the lunch, but. There's the cost well, of time, and then and, and, yeah. and, and then and then you tell your mom about all the things you've been doing, and then she condemns your activity as an additional qualitative fright. <laughs> and I actually, yeah. I actually used to uh, when I was when I was recruiting in my last job, I would message software engineers, and I'd go, I I remember making the subject line "free lunch." It really exists. <laughs> <laughs> But obviously, it's like the opposite of a free lunch, right? I'm like, they come out to lunch with me. I'm gonna start pitching them a job at Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the idea of a, the the idea of the the tax or the fee, I thought was also a good takeaway from the book. Like, the quote from Munger was, "I, I was never optimizing for you know for financial gain. I was optimizing for freedom." And so he was playing this long game with Buffett and exposed to a ton of volatility over the long term, but they stayed in the game. But that volatility, it, it wrought psychological disaster probably on them in the short term. And so playing that long term game, you're, you're paying this little psychological fee to play in the form of volatility. So if you unplug from your, your salary job and you go full solve, you're paying a volatility fee throughout. As long as you can keep paying that and play the long term game, I think ultimately you, you you end up ahead. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, any any uh, any last thoughts, guys? T H O T or <laughs> any last thoughts? No, I don't have any. We're 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 isolated in the woods. Um, I have none. N U N.
None thoughts. Um, I would say I think um, I think there's a nice bridge between fasting, minimalism, you know, living with less, and this idea of like those are habits which then contribute to basically you know shrinking your ego which then in the context of like psychology of money wealth being the difference between your income and your ego by bringing your ego down you get that that delta and you can save more which lets you charge up the wealth battery and it's almost like to be wealthy you have to be humble um which kind of goes against the somewhat common take that um, to be wealthy, you have to be like hot, like you're, you're flashy and you're, you know, you're just like have all this panache. But instead, it's about, you know, being really humble and almost stoic, um, channeling the Seneca vibes. So that would be yeah. my takeaway from the book and uh, a backlink to our other episodes. Yeah. I just thought of something else. I know we're trying to wrap up, but the other day... Um, <laughs> I got the other day I, I ordered Instacart, you know, like grocery delivery, which honestly is a lever because you, you pay like six bucks and you don't have to take the time. And I end up buying less stuff because I just I get exactly what I need and that's it. It's fucking awesome. But I ordered Instacart and the girl who delivered it was driving like a brand new BMW 3 Series. And I thought it was so interesting, you know, because if I saw it tied in well with the book, right? If like if I saw that girl driving out when I'm driving I would be like, oh, damn, like, what, you know, what does she do for a living? Does she have rich parents? Does she work? Does she, you know, have her own business? Is she an influencer or whatever? But this girl's, you know, working for like $12 an hour. Um, and I don't know. I just thought it was interesting, you know, like what you see on the surface. It, you can't see wealth, right? Yeah. Sometimes, but too often what looks like wealth is, someone who's extremely extremely indebted yeah yeah like i this this guy i know back from st louis he's the one who recommended like he taught me about bitcoin he taught me about uh robert kiyosaki he recommended that book and he like <laughs> he drives like a super old car and he and he won't fix the ac he's had a broken ac for like three years he won't buy airpods he has like plug-in like you know to his iphone but yeah. the guy doesn't have to work you know he doesn't have to work yeah. and it and if it, like when I met him, he was wearing like kind of old raggedy clothes, like old raggedy car. And it's like, you almost would be like, Oh, this guy's a loser just looking at him. But he's like, so fucking sovereign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but what is Buffett? What is Buffett whip? Like, uh, he, he, he's got a whip, like a, like a Ford or a, or a Chevy. Yeah. yeah. Same house. Right. He's lived in the same house for like he's his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, he goes to the same, well, it's not a Dairy Queen because I don't think you can have lunch at Dairy Queen, but I think he eats at the same uh, fast food restaurant that yeah. uh, Berkshire owns and has done for like 40 years. Just, just him and Munger eating $6 <laughs> burgers instead of going to the steakhouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. And it's funny because like, that's a pretty common, like, I feel like that's common knowledge to a lot of people, right? Everybody loves to tell, oh yeah, well, look at Warren Buffett. He drives the same car, same house. But we don't act like that's true, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, there's such a disconnect. And so, I don't know. That's that's kind of one of my big takeaways. I think I like about that is, like, to really um, be wealthy is to be really humble. 
and to be humble is to like commit to it forever. You know, when a lot of people talk about money, they're like, I'm going to save for a month and then I can finally splurge on this thing. But really, to be wealthy, you have to commit to it like ad infinitum, you know, like Buffett would <laughs> drive that that uh, that standard car jalopy. for the rest of his life. Yeah, he'll, he'll whip the jalopy until he has a trillion dollars. Buffett will have more yeah, money dude. than the U.S. has debt and he'll still be whipping a jalopy. You know? <laughs> like so stubborn, you know, it's all, right. like it's it's irrational almost, you know, but it's reasonable. <laughs> but it's reasonable. <laughs> He's 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 free and happy, right? So yeah. you know, you can drive a Chevy, eat the same rancid burger, but man's free and happy, has control of his time, spends his time with his loved ones. It's the way to do it. It's an interesting thought experiment because I I can't imagine having billions and like not buying a Ferrari. <laughs> or actually I I like Lamborghinis better, but I you know, I can't imagine that. And maybe that's a problem for me. Maybe that's gonna stop me from being wealthy. Yeah. So l- let me l- let me attempt to to close this out unless you guys have any further and you guys should add just any any summarizing points. So um, the idea of the psychology of money book is that um, the same prescriptions on what to do with your money do not apply across people. They come from different backgrounds. They have different biases. They're trying to do the best that they can. Be reasonable, not rational. Rational is not reasonable for a human because we're not rational. So you want to put yourself in a position such that with your wealth, it compounds over time. That means being in the game long enough for compounding to play its role, which means not exposing yourself to ridiculous catastrophic risks. And that's kind of, that's kind of what I took away. You guys have additions. That's well said. Love it. Well, thank you for watching everybody. And we will see you on the next one. But I mean, peace.